to grab your seats and we will get going for a conversation about uh, serial journalism in practice, I guess is what we'll call it. My name is Kai Rusnall. I'm the host of a public radio program called Marketplace. Uh, thank, thank you, I guess. I don't know. Um, and, and I will tell you a very quick story. About a year or so ago, I got an email from Jim Fallows. And it said, and this is almost a quote. I don't know if I've ever actually told you my initial reaction. It said, is this a good email for business transactions? And I said to myself, well, now, I know Jim Fallows, so he's not a Nigerian scammer. But if I were a more suspicious man, I would just put this in the delete file. I didn't, and thankfully so, because what happened was he came to us and he said, listen, my wife Deb and I have an idea. We have a small plane. We want to go around the country and report on what this country looks like from 3,500 feet. We will stop at any of the 5,000 small airports around this country that we want to and tell people what we see. And we'd like you to come along and be our radio partners. And we said, in essence, sure. And here we are a year later. Uh, what we're going to do is talk for about 40 minutes, Jim, Deb, and I, uh, about why they're doing it, what they are seeing out there, um, what it means, and then we'll take some questions from you guys, if that sounds, if that sounds all right. Um, what I would like to start with, and you guys can decide amongst yourselves who's going to do it, uh, is talk about the underlying premise of this project, how you came to the realization that you needed to do this. That's yours. So, so it's a really real pleasure to be here in Aspen again with Kai again. It's been great to be partners with him and his whole team at Marketplace. And I'll say a word about how we decided to spend our time this way and then the kind of adventures we've had together on, on the road, together Marketplace in the Atlantic, together uh, Deb and I. Over the long years that I've worked for the Atlantic, which started in 1979, so it's been a while, Deb and I and our once young, now grown kids have lived in lots of different parts of the world. And especially when we were living in Japan or Malaysia or China or other places, we liked just getting on the road by bus or train or whatever and seeing what was there. Especially this was worthwhile in China, where we were based in Shanghai and Beijing, but just seeing all the little podunk places, we thought we learned much more by doing that in other ways. That's one part of the background. A second part of the background is over the last 15 years, Deb and I have flown off and across the United States in our little plane and realized there's all sorts of places we would never see except uh, for landing there in a small plane. Uh, who here is a pilot or a pilot, pilot aspirant? Uh, who has flown here in, in small or private planes? I bet it's, so you know this, uh, this, this view of the country, of places you wouldn't otherwise go, Grand Island, Nebraska, Red Oak, Iowa. So we thought there's lots of interesting things we were seeing. Two other contributing things. One was we've been back in D.C. from China for a while, and I was getting really despairing about the D.C. writing I was doing, wanting something that was an alternative to, to that. And finally, one of our sons, who's uh, now in his mid-30s, lives in San Francisco, and is a great um, marketer. He said, what you, the two of us, really should do is just start flying around the country and do this kind of reporting trip. We thought, that sounds like, like a lot of fun. So, so the premise is, so that was the premise from our point of view. The journalistic premise is that... Let, let me interrupt yeah. here. Can we, Grace, can we turn that background music off? Yeah. It's making me crazy. Mm. Yeah, all right. So if we could figure out a way to turn that down, that'd be great. I apologize. We see the radio professionals here, so no. thank you very very much. So, so the, the journalistic premise really is this. 
that the, the mainstream media that, that many people here are part of and that we all draw on is very thorough in covering New York, D.C., Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago sometimes. The rest of the country seems to be talked about in abstraction. When there's a disaster of some kind, a shooting, a tornado, when there's a concept piece, you say, let's do a piece about meth in the heartland, you can send a team someplace, or often in quaint ways. The, the, the way I usually refer to this is world's biggest ball of twine. And we wanted to say, if you were doing it in a sort of serious reporting way, what would you think about the fabric of America by going to towns like Holland, Michigan, and Eastport, Maine, and, and Winters, California, and Columbus, Mississippi, and Spartanburg, uh, South Carolina, and all the rest? That's what we've been doing. Mm -hmm. You want to add? Okay. Uh, I guess I, the one thing I'd add is that we were aiming towards small or smallish sized towns. Jim and I both grew up in small towns. California and Ohio, and so that was a, a natural thing that resonated with us, that we knew that there was a lot going on in these small towns that would be underreported and, and hope that we'd have a, a sense of that just from growing up in places like that, too. So let's uh, explore a couple of themes here that you guys have found and that, and that we have been able to find uh, as we go out with you. And, and just since Marketplace is a program on business and the economy, we'll start uh, with that. This idea that businesses in these towns matter so fundamentally, locally owned businesses. And, and maybe what we should start with is... Um, uh, we could go to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We could go to Eastport, Maine. Pick one and give me the sense of the business climate there. So, so there have been a number of related themes that we've found. And one of them that struck us early on, I think early in this process, Kai and his team joined us in, in Sioux Falls. And we had one really interesting dinner at the end of our, our time there where we had the president of the college, and we had the leaders of the banks, we had the mayor and other people who had been building Sioux Falls and explaining why they thought that, it, that the sort of texture of this town was so important and valuable to people there. And in almost all the cases, it was because these were businesses that felt as if they were from Sioux Falls. Uh, one guy, for example, who ran the uh, the local packing house, the John Morrell Slaughterhouse, which is a downtown feature. Was you, saying, can, you can smell bacon throughout <laughs> Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I pr I pr it's, you think I'm kidding, but it's absolutely the truth. It is. Uh, the downtown of Sioux Falls has three dominant features. One is the eponymous falls, which yep. have been cleaned up and are now very nice. The second is the state pen, yep. which dominates uh, the, the landscape there. When the city was, a state was being set up from a territory to a state, they gave Sioux Falls a choice. You want the university or you want the penitentiary? They wanted the pen because it was sort of steadier long-term employment. And the third is this enormous pig slaughterhouse, which is now owned by a, a Chinese company. But it was a sense of the local fostering of business, creating career. Sioux Falls also, as another theme, was uh, successful in absorbing refugees from yep. around the world. And, and so, so, but, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so go ahead with that one. Yeah. Starting with the, the business stories, we've also found a lot of spillover into the kind of cultural and civic stories of the town. And, and the Sioux Falls story of the town was just fascinating. In the 70s, they started taking in uh, refugees from Vietnam. Um, and since they became so good at it and so well-known in the umbrella refugee organizations that they kept getting waves and waves of new refugees since then, Lately, they've been Somalis and Sudanese, um, and there were lots of different kinds in between. And right now, 10% of the city school population in Sioux Falls are new immigrants, new refugees. And they come in from speaking 60 different languages from all over the world and 60 different cultures in tow. 
the school system in Sioux Falls has decided, the whole city, in fact, has decided to embrace this as a challenge rather than be, be afraid of it in some ways. And the kinds of, they've established in their public school systems uh, a total immersion introductory school for kids who have nothing to start with, bring in their families, give them cultural training, sluice them into the, into the factories yeah, yeah. to work, well, so I'll, so I'll tell you what. Yeah. Let's pick up there. So there was a uh, there's a large Nepalese community mm-hmm. in, Sioux in Sioux Falls, and I wound up uh, on our reporting trip out there in the apartment of this uh, family, and it was three generations, maybe four. Uh, and I wound up talking to this 22 year old kid who worked in the slaughterhouse. He had he had fractured English, but we had enough to communicate. And I looked at his hands, and on his hands were calluses, I kid you not, the size of quarters. And his job in the pork processing plant was to cut off hands from the pigs. And he would do 5,000 hams a day with a knife, just like this, repeat it. And he was happy as a clam because he was making 15 bucks an hour in Sioux Falls, and he had a job. And it was the most amazing thing. Could not have been more... Um, removed from where he came from, but completely happy. Right. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if I can leapfrog for a second to a political point, because I'm afraid I will forget to make Go it, ahead. and then come back to, to, to a business point here, which is that we've lived in D.C. half of the last 40 years, and that's been interesting but depressing. You know, anybody here who pays attention to national politics knows that it really is now a zero-sum game that you can define your success by stopping the other side from, from doing things. And that just, you know, you, it's interesting to learn about how it works and how you can kind of game it out. And I think it is natural if you're exposed to especially D.C. politics or national politics to think that that is America today. And without sounding sappy, because that, that is, I'm always fearful of sounding sappy, it's not the kind of thing we've seen. We've seen places that are practical-minded, compromise-minded, future-oriented, um, fair-minded, empathetic, and just willing to do things for the future of a little town of Winters, California, where we were two or three days ago, or Duluth, Minnesota, before, before that, or Mississippi. You know, Mississippi, where they're dealing with a heritage of being Mississippi. And it just says, so I feel in a non-corny way much better about just what is the texture of this country than I did a year ago. Yeah, we're going to get back to that. Yeah. But I want to, since you mentioned Mississippi, um, let's... Uh, examine the fundamental premise of this series that yeah. you're working on, which is America from 3,500 mm-hmm. feet. Give those who are not familiar yeah. with aviation, uh, uh, general aviation, yeah. first give them the quick primer on your plane because yeah. it's a cool thing, right. and then why it works for you to do right. this instead of just getting in your car and, and going on, you know, 95 or something. So the plane I have is called a Cirrus SR-22. This is now the most popular small plane in the world. I did a book about 15 years ago called Free Flight about people who are innovators in, in the new aerospace boom and the Klapmeyer brothers of Duluth, Minnesota, the modern Wright brothers, even though they had a very bitter split within the family. I developed this plane. There are now about 6,000 in the world. It's distinctive because it has a parachute for the entire plane. You know, if, if you're in a situation where the alternative is crashing, there's a little red handle on the ceiling. Kai seen it, Deb has seen it. You pull his, that. his pre-flight briefing, <laughs> briefing includes, includes what to do. If yeah, and you, you pull that down. Um, for the first three years, these planes were on the market. They went on the market in late 99. Nobody knew if it would really work in practice. They'd had a million tests, but they hadn't seen it in a practice. And then 
A guy in Texas had had his plane in for its uh, annual inspection. He took off from, I think, the Addison Airport. About 1,000 feet up, the aileron fell off. Uh, the mechanic had been um, lax here. This is a situation that is, means you are going to crash because the plane cannot be controlled. Climbed another 30 seconds, pulled the handle, came down on a golf course, walked away. Cirrus refurbished the plane, flew it around. There have now been 47 or 48 deployments in the, last 50, in the last 15 years. One person injured his back in the deployment. Everybody else has survived and, and, and walked away. That's the plane. Um, when we, the, the premise is there's lots of places in America you can't go by big airlines and you can't go on interstates. Every place, every place has an airport. Where we were in Mississippi, there were four airports within about a 10-mile radius. Yeah. And so it, they, they were all over the place. And so just being able to come into a little place like Columbus, Mississippi, and sort of show up and the culture of small aviation and just seeing, working out from there, of little places that we can get to this way. Now yeah. tell us what, I'm sorry, go oh, ahead. I was going to say, there's a definite culture of small plane yeah. aviation, too. Um, this is Jim's passion. I'm the passenger. I've learned to embrace this. Um, I really like the idea of the parachute, and, and, and I love the view from, we call this 3,500 feet. Yeah. My actual favorite is 2,500 feet, because you look down. If you're going over Iowa, you see the small roads. You see the white picket fences. You see the school bus kind of amble up to the gate, and then it pulls off again. You see the carts in the Amish country. And, and you see this display of America that you, you actually never get from anywhere no. else. You see, well, it's not a good topic to bring up, but you see prisons. It's astonishing how many prisons there are, and they're usually next to quarries. I don't know why, except that there are a lot of prisons and that there are a lot of quarries. You see the little <laughs> rivers meandering. You see the seasons playing out before you when you're up in Maine, and then it in the same month of October, you know, no leaves up there, and by the time you're down to Georgia in the same day, it's just, it's just full of green leaves still and everything in between. Um, but the, the, this, it's like flying in a, in a nice little small car, actually. And, really nice. Um, We've got leather seats the whole day. I mean, that's yeah. a nice plane. It's a nice plane. And the air traffic controllers are our friend. They guide us everywhere and take us through things. And when you land at these little tiny airports, you kind of never know what you're going to run into. Except that, that I guess I'd describe it as the Harley culture, a bit of the Harley culture in the air. Yep. And they're often having a barbecue right there at the, at the General Aviation Airport. And, and um, I'm a convert. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so now, tell us what Columbus, Mississippi looks like from 3,500 ah. feet, right? We were, so yes. Jim and I and, and Deb were just there yeah. six weeks ago? Yeah. yeah. And, and so who knows what the golden triangle of Mississippi is? I did not until, yeah. you know, to my well, Gloria, our friend Gloria did it, certainly does. So Golden Triangle is the marketing term for the tri-city complex of Columbus, Starkville, and West Point. Starkville is locally famous and should be famous as the home of Mississippi State. Columbus has a Columbus Air Force Base. Um, West Point used to have a giant Sara Lee factory that closed down and was, you know, laid off probably, uh, I think, 10% of the town's population was laid off. So we one time flew there over the Delta when Deb and I were coming there from the West. We've been at Caddo Lake on the Louisiana-Texas border, seeing the Caddo Lake Nature Reserve we're going to write about. And we're coming over, and we went to the Delta, which was striking number one. It was still very brown in, uh, I guess, May, but also it was full of catfish ponds. You could see what looked like a gigantic ice cube tray 
of these things about the size of maybe football fields with bluish water, and those were the catfish farms in Mississippi. Then we started getting the piney woods, and we got to this, this tri-state area, and it's, the, I think the striking thing of, of the Golden Triangle of Mississippi is the ruins of the old factories and the new ones they're building, because the airport that we landed right. in Columbus, right. Lowndes County Airport, it was a small place, no fence or anything. You, on the final approach, you go right over old, an old pants factory, a car headliner factory, other things that all have closed because they're so, so low wage. And outside town is a giant new um, steelworks that we went into. Is <laughs> Explain giant. I mean, it <laughs> this is it's a so-called steel mini mill yeah. uh, owned by the Russian firm Severstal. It's, it's an enormous, I mean, it's, it's incomprehensibly large, and it's like being in the gates of hell. You have this molten stuff it's just an, flowing every place. the China comparison. Well, so it was, right. I was telling Kai, this was like being back in China, being just in this elemental thing. I'd been there a couple days before we went, and there was in this tour where we were walking through the, the melting room where the way an electric arc steel furnace works is they have these graphite electrodes. They said it's like a, an electric welder, except a million times bigger. It's, it's the size of a telephone pole. It's, it's like a pencil lid, basically, yes, the size of a telephone pole, through which they <laughs> pump electricity, and then somehow it turns this steel into molten it's stuff. A it's 3,000 degrees. It's bananas. And, and it's worth 800 jobs, yeah. right, in this economy, brought there by a guy we're going to get to in a yes. minute, right? And, and, and they said that they, they were required by their contract with the state of Mississippi to have the average wage for non-supervisory employees there be at least $70,000. It's actually 78000 the median this northern Mississippi, yeah. $78,000. Right, and the median household income right. in some of these cities, areas is like 31000 So the average wage is like 70 plus. Uh, I can't get out with Jim as often as I like <laughs> because I have a day job back in LA. <laughs> so what we do in those periods where um, I can't get out there is we get Jim on the phone and, and we do a quick interview to sort of check in and see where he's been and, and what themes are developing. Uh, and they're always great interviews because they're great slices of the American economy. I will tell you, though, publicly now, and I apologize <laughs> for doing this in front of everybody, the best Fallows interview we ever mm. did was with his wife. That's for sure, yes. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. And it, and it, was, I, it was off a blog post that she wrote and a series of, of posts that she had written about um, linguistics and regional cultural differences. She, you are a PhD in what, historical linguistics. and theoretical linguistics? Something? From UT. <clears throat> right. she, went, she went out and uh, basically pursued this line of questioning. What happens? What's the exchange that happens in various places throughout the country after you say hi? What happens? So I'll, I'll turn it to you, and, and, and I'll let you expound on that a little while. Good. Okay. This is great. This happened completely by accident when we were in Greenville, South Carolina. And, you know, you've got that, hi, how are you, what's your name, and so forth. And then there's the next question where people kind of come up short. And the next question in Greenville, South Carolina, is where do you go to church? Which really kind of <laughs> took me by surprise. I thought, where do you go to church? You know, is, is that too personal? What kind of question is that? So we started um, kind of doing a poll and going around the country of what people say when, as that next question. And the where do you go to church question actually got a lot of people angry, like how dare you ask where I go to church, or what, a, what an imposing question that is. Um, 
it happens in, in rural areas, rural Maine down to rural Virginia. And there's a spin-off in, well, of course, Greenville, South Carolina has so many different churches. And it becomes the question, which is what all these questions are, for the proxy to explain, to ask, who are you? You know, let me get a fix on you. Who are your people? Where are you from? Where do you fit into my life? Um, that question is an old-time Boston and Chicago question in the form of, what parish are you from? And I had one guy write into me and said, you know, I'm not even Catholic, and I know I'm from St. Matthias Parish, because that's what everybody asks. In um, the, actually, when I was, I found myself here saying the question that I think is the Aspen Ideas Week question. You can see if you find this, too. Where are you staying? Oh, yeah, 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 right? that's it. yeah totally. I'm not totally. sure what that means, and, and I don't, I don't even know what the answer is. Well, it's, are you in the club and staying at the Meadows? Are you staying at one of the nice hotels? Are you, oh, but see, if you're right? staying at the Meadows, you think, you know, we're on campus. All the, all the campus. everybody right. else gets to be right. in the, right. yeah, right. in the right. hotels. Uh, so, but that's the question. New, or- New Orleans. And New Louisiana. Orleans. So you're done in New Orleans, and the question there is, if you think, where do you go to churches in Mason, it's, who's your mama? Who's, who's your mama? Legitimately, I said when the guy wrote in to me, and that, you've got to be kidding. You know, I know you're pulling my leg in this. Nope. And, and it's, it's the kind of who are your people question of I know by your last name who's, who's your daddy. But, but it's the who's your mama question that really makes, makes a difference. Um, New York and Washington are still the holdouts of the worst question in the world. Where do you work? Yeah. What do you that, do, right? Yeah. Yep. And... We also found that this, the younger generation, the, 30 some, the late 20s to mid-30-somethings, will not go near that question. Because in this work climate and job era, you don't even want to know what the answer is. Too many people are embarrassed. They don't have jobs. They don't know where they're going to get a job. And you avoid that by saying in L.A., uh, how'd you get here? You know, yeah. the, the, the I-10 to the 405 or whatever yep. it is. And then yep. where'd you park? Yep. Um, totally. And <laughs> in San Francisco, it's uh, what'd you bring to eat? Yeah. Oh, only one more. Yeah, Co- the Colorado question: Where do you ski, or where do you hike, or where do you bike? Wow. Yeah. And, so and, and two more. In Seattle, it's what do you do in the sense of recreation? Yeah. No, not not work, but recreation, and then. Somebody wrote in validating my lifelong question. I always ask people, what's your story? That's my... That's a good one. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that seems, that's a safe one, because then it's, what do you want to tell me yeah. about, rather than, where do you work? Huh. Yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned politics, and, and local politics sort of being elemental to what is happening in some of these cities. I want to talk to you about... Um, the, the great man theory mm. of renewal in rural and small-town mm. America. And I'm thinking now of Joe Max Harris from, from Columbus yeah. or what's-his-name, Captain Bob in, in, Captain uh, Captain Bob in Eastport, Maine. Yeah. We've been thinking about this a lot. So Kai is referring to the, the, uh, our air quotes for the great man theory, uh, great person theory. If a town is turning around, like this part of Mississippi getting new factories, as part of, of Maine trying to hold on against all, all odds, is it because there's somebody who has decided to pour his or her personhood into it? And I think we've ended up thinking a way you can get a proxy for that is if you ask people who really – Who's a leader here? Who do people look up to? And if there's not an answer, 
that actually is the answer. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. In, in Mississippi, we found when you, we asked business questions, it was always this organization of Brenda Lathan, who's a middle-aged black woman, Joe Max Higgins, who's a middle-aged white guy, son of a sheriff. Everybody would say, they're the people who've done it. If you asked them who was holding the sort of society together, they said, there isn't really anybody. Mm -hmm. and, 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 but other towns, for example, they would say, like, like in Duluth, Duluth, Minnesota, where we've been, the young mayor there, Don Ness. Everybody would say, oh, yeah, this Mayor Ness, he really has, has you know, brought the town back to life. And, and so I think if you ask people, I've come to think that, 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 that if people are aware of somebody who's really cared about it, well, Jack Angelon in Redlands, uh, Burlington. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. And they're places without any leaders. Right. Um, you write a, and, and you have written about this sense of us-ness that some of these smaller yeah. cities have. Um, where does that come from? How do they get that? And why don't big cities have it? Yeah, that's certainly the, the lesser attractive side of things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's both. Bad, it's, a right? yes. it's a balanced yeah. thing, yeah. yeah. Um, it, and the bad side is, say, Eastport, Maine, 1,200 people, it's the kind of town where if you don't have six volunteer jobs that you're doing, you're kind of not, a, not a really, you don't belong to that town. We went to an evening performance at the theater and found that the newspaper editor was collecting tickets. The stage manager was the barista the next morning. You know, everybody's doing everything in that town. And that town is only working because everybody's doing everything. And yet, on the other side, there's this shorthand, PFA, person from away, which means you were not born in that town. Even Captain Bob Peacock Captain Bob. He came, was there born in Lubeck. Was, but wow. came there Two when he away. was three days old. And he is really, you know, I, I think he has honorary <laughs> status, but it is, um, you can kind of never get yeah. away from being a person from the outside. And, and like but, in my, my hometown of Redlands, California, which is a, it was then a small town when I grew up and still small-ish, um, I didn't, wasn't actually born there, but I grew up there from first consciousness. But, and people who moved there after they were 20 or 30, they're not, never really from there. They're always seen as being from someplace else. So I think, I think it's, a, it's a good it's and a bad. It's a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. and, and also on, on the we are all in this together, I think especially in these small towns, everybody knows that they have to contribute. And even the, the words, we've heard so many people now in so many of these towns say, I am so proud of my town. Mm -hmm. This is the best town you could possibly live in. And, you know, we've got 10 best towns in America now where yeah. people say that yeah. about themselves yes. because of the, the, the words that they use. You can, you can just hear it of being proud of where you're from. And, and just to, to quickly add on this if I could, you know, it's right, there are some places where the act of coming there is usness. Like in Sioux Falls, we were discussing there that the, the sort of dominant image of being a Sioux Falls person is coming from some smaller place elsewhere. You know, you're from uh, Spearfish or someplace else in, in South Dakota, or you're from Somalia, and you've gotten there in Burlington, Vermont. A lot of people came up there in the 60s, and that, that's a, a narrative there. One other point, everybody here has read uh, Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone mm -hmm. thesis. I've come really not to believe it. You know, that every place we've seen, it's been bowling together. And this, this, we're looking for that, but we've been able to find it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, why the, let me back up for a minute. This will be, I'm, I'm reasonably sure I'm not sharing any secrets here. This will be the next Jim Fallows book, right? Or, uh, or the next, well, <laughs> well good. Um, what do you hope those who read it get out of it? Because you will get traction in yeah. your hometown of Washington, D.C. 
not red lines, right? Where, where people who know you and people who matter are going to get your insights. What do you guys hope that they learn from, from your travels with Charlie as well? So, so I will start, and then you'll get the corrected version from as, as the way we've, we've held together over the years. So, so I think that the reason we're going to eventually back up, the best day, the best day of the book writing cycle is the day you sign the contract. <laughs> after, after that, everything after that is terrible because you're overdue from that second onward. You're thinking, oh, God, this will never, I'll never get this done. What I always tell myself in writing a book is, won't this guy shut up? You know, you're just sort of sitting there typing again and again. But we will eventually do this partly because we're seeing so much more stuff we want to tell things mm -hmm. to people about that we haven't put on the website or Atlantic articles or in broadcast with you. And I think it will be giving people a different appreciation of the texture of the country that's not just quaint. You know, here's some oddity that, uh, that we see in, in the Iowa State Fair, but here is another part of the American identity, and that is interesting and, and a part of what makes us us. And it's interesting because in some ways it's a, it's a throwback. We keep thinking this is a throwback to how this country started. It's people working together, people being entrepreneurial, be, people having the pioneering spirit of we can do this. You know, let's get together and do this. That, and, and the million stories that, that go along with that to make these things happen that, you know, I think – I think you all probably share that sense that we had before we started this, that there's a lot of stuff going up on out there in the country that people are creating and making up and figuring out how to do in spite of all of the tension and turmoil that we're trying to work within in federal laws and, and official agreements and things. And can I hold in for another 20 seconds? So I've been to Duluth a million times, yeah. and until this last trip, I'd never heard of a company that employs like eight or 900 people there and has a worldwide market in high-end kitchenware and, and furniture. Mm -hmm. It's called Law Designs and Epicurean. You can buy them in any high-end store in 60 countries around oh. the world. They ship out of Duluth. That stuff is happening every place. And, and the other <laughs> thing, the sense of, of how, how towns are figuring out what they need to do locally to make themselves uh, Really rich, not in the monetary sense, but rich in a cultural and civic sense. And, and we see this in the institutions of the town that people, people are working with. I've started going in every one of these towns to the library, to the YMCA, always finding a school to visit. Mm -hmm. And each one has the same kind of mission of, be, of investing themselves in part in the town to do what is important, but in an idiosyncratic way for the local market. Do you worry that you are being too positive? Because there are huge yeah. blemishes that yep. need yeah. to be acknowledged, right? There's the yep. race issue in Mississippi, sure. there's mm -hmm. the crumbling infrastructure in the in the rusty north, yep. I mean all of that stuff. So we have tried hard to to balance two things. You know, through my writing life I've mainly written about all the problems America has. Yeah. And so I, I feel as if I sort of established that I'm aware of <laughs> of defects in American governance, uh, civil society and, and all the rest. What I hadn't heard is, hadn't seen is anything on the other side. So point one is, to me, it's news that there is this stuff going on. And actually, the way I think you signed off the broadcast from Mississippi is, if you think yeah. that stuff is not being made in America, come to Mississippi and you'll see all these things. So that, that's point one. Point two, especially in the most conflicted places, we've tried to have, we tried to, to, to go in, into all angles here. For example, Greenville, South Carolina is a very politically very conservative city 
very cosmopolitan with European business, but home of Bob Jones University. It was what Jim DeMint um, uh, represented. It was the last county in the last state to, to do Martin Luther King's birthday, et cetera. And I published a letter after I was saying some good things about Greenville from a woman who'd been an academic there at Furman University for a couple of years. And she said she hated Greenville with the heat of a thousand million suns wow. because it's a, it's a phrase that sticks in your mind yeah. and, and because it was so, so exclusive for people like her. And I guess Every place we've been, people are aware of this. And mm -hmm. Mississippi has been, I think, the most interesting yeah. place so far. They're so aware of the burdens of Mississippi. And there was a great letter I was able to publish about a week ago from a lawyer in Jackson saying, it is such a change to have what we're doing described as if we were normal people, not these specimens of, of benightedness and backwardness, even though we have a million problems and it affects our lives every day. Um. The, the schools might be a good example of this, because when, when we go to a town, you know, maybe there are three schools or eight schools, and we usually kind of ask around, what's the interesting school here? And, of course, it's always the positive school. Yeah. But in, so in Columbus, Mississippi, there is a school called the Mississippi School for Mathematics and Science. Mm -hmm. It is a two-year junior <clears throat> and senior high school public residential school that is focused on very high-end um, science and math. These kids are drawn from everywhere in Mississippi, a lot from the Delta, incredibly poor, um, and have, you can imagine that you take them out of opportunities where, where schools are not a wonderful thing in Mississippi. This school was the creation of a Governor William Winter in the late 1980s, and about a dozen schools around the country, uh, States around the country have these public residential schools that are specialized in one way or another. At that school in Columbus, Mississippi, um, you know, I could have gone to Columbus High School, where a few of the kids were from, and I, and I knew you, you know the story of Columbus High School. It's not a good place. At, at the Mississippi School of Math and Science, one morning I was talking to three kids, um, a white girl and two African-American kids. The black girl from nearby Starkville said, I love this school. My school was all black, and I just didn't want to be in a school with all blacks. The, boy, the girl from Hattiesburg said, my school was all white. I didn't want to be in a school with all white kids, so I came to this school. The boy from Columbus, Mississippi said, my school was a little bit mixed, black and white, but it was all football, and I don't play football, so I didn't want to be in a school that was all football. Yeah. That kid, by the way, um, in his extracurricular project in his electronics class, designed and has made a 3D printer. I saw this cool. thing. Like, cobbled together out of two-by-fours and, and plastic, and, and he's getting it up and running, and he just won a, a Gates Millennium Scholarship, and he's going to Harvey Mudd, and... So, I, okay, that's the wrong answer. I, <laughs> no, there's a lot yeah. of bad going on in these towns, but to have, you can find the good in there, and I'm sure we'll get to writing about a lot more yeah. of the bad, but it won't be nearly as much fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're going to open it up uh, to questions. So raise your hand. We'll try to get a mic to where you are. The mic is coming from the back, so we're going to go with the gentleman in the back right there. Hi, I have a couple of... Hang on a second. Let's get that mic up, shall we? Try it again. Are we good? There we go. Okay, a couple of quick questions. First of all, you mentioned uh, uh, a pig farm 
or a pig factory rather in uh, in South Dakota that was owned by the Chinese and a Russian owned uh, factory in Mississippi. What is the effect on uh, to the locals for this, and what is your impression of the overall effect of yeah. something like this? And also from the air and on the ground, have you seen any effects of climate change that have affected local period people? And I'd like to make a quick comment uh, at the end well, here. Let's, there, it's a full okay. answer, it's so just why, don't we, a quick, why don't we answer your questions real quick, okay. and then we'll move it Isn't on. it a shame penitentiaries are a big business in our country? Um, That's a whole yeah. different lecture. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, so quickly on those three, starting at the end, Charles Dickens noted the proliferation of prisons across the United States. Every visitor to the U.S. notes this. It's just the three things we note from above. The America is much more forested than you would think, many more quarries than you would think, and many more prisons. So this is how we are. On the uh, climate change, yes. Uh, we've seen in South Dakota, we saw in Rapid City, a lot of the uh, pines there being killed by the whatever that is, the beetle, bark the, beetle, yeah. the bark beetle. Um, a year and a, two years ago when we were doing flying across the country, the drought of the Midwest was just incredible. You know, it looked as if the, the dry lands had moved 1,000 miles eastwards. Uh, that, that seems that now the Midwest looks much more. And the flooding. In, uh, and the yeah. flooding. In, yeah. Around St. Louis. Yes, yeah. all, all over the place. And the first question of foreign ownership, most locals view this as good rather than bad. You know, Severstall has brought 800 high-wage jobs, wage jobs yeah. to, to Mississippi. They're also um, Airbus makes its helicopters in Mississippi, too. And this is very high, again, high-wage, high-precision work. The... Uh, on the slaughterhouse, the view of the local owners is they're not going to move the slaughterhouse back to China. And it was actually the, the Chinese company wanted the higher brand image of... Uh, of um, Smithfield uh, Farms. Smithfield right? Farms, yeah. yes, yeah. because of all the food scandals in China. So I think it's generally viewed as a positive thing locally, which and, is my general view. And it bears a mention, actually, that, that these big foreign conglomerates are counterbalanced in a lot of places by local entrepreneurs. Yes. I'm thinking, uh, you know, there's no big foreign companies in, in Redlands, but Hangar 24, yep. a craft brewery and, and there. Esri? Yep. yep. Esri, of course. With found a couple of thousand yeah, people. You bet. You bet. So yep. there's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff going yep. on, not just the big ones. Let's work the mic toward the front here, shall we, just because it's going to take you a while to get around. You guys decide. You're being too polite. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I have kind of a logistical question. How did you decide what cities to go to? And then, or, and then did you travel with reservations or just land and somebody said to go stay at this motel and yeah. eat at this diner? Yeah. Really good yeah. question. Yeah, good question. So Jim posted on his blog at the beginning of this, here's what we're thinking of doing. We're, we, you know, we want to go to a few towns. And within three days, we had 1,000 people write in. Yeah come to my town in long paragraphs yeah. of why you should come to their town. Yeah. And so we, we went to a few towns that we thought would be good starter places we learned we knew a little bit about already and then you know started started delving into this huge resource that we had of, of towns to go to and, and um, so you, you kind of choose one and then we do as much research as we can, do a little bit of preliminary uh, calling on the telephone to the usual suspects the people in factories, chamber of commerce, the mayor, and so forth. Then we get in the plane and land and just you cross your fingers and say, please, God, you know, we've committed to this place for the next week or two. I hope it works out. The first few days are generally a little bit rough. Um, but I will, I will tell you, by the time I get there, everything's all awesome. Yeah, we work it out for yeah. By the time Marketplace yeah. shows up, it's, we know where to go. By the time it's day three, we, it yeah. just snowballs, and there are so many people to talk to. And, and by We usually come back again. We, we have yeah. to go back yeah. again. because it does. So it, it's a little bit of a trial and error. We're getting better at it yeah. because you kind of get to know what you work for. But I, we, as long as we both shall live, we could continue to do this, and mm. you're welcome to come along. <laughs> and, all right, yeah. let's get right here. 
Hi, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. Two quick questions. One is whether or not Native American reservations and those communities were included in this project. If not, why not? And the second would be um, resilience is a, yep. has become a term of art. And I'm just curious, after this experience, how you might think about framing the concept right. of resilience. Yeah. First question, yes. We've been, we've been looking, and only yesterday I got an email saying, here is a place where you should come in New Mexico from someone yeah. who knew it. So, so yes, it's on our list. And it's, you know, we have, we've, there's like several hundred places we've been considering. We've been to like 12 for extended periods. So I, I think that pretty soon we'll get there. But we know we need yes. to. On the resilience front, our initial idea a year ago when we were proposing this is that that was the theme we were looking for, places that had gone through some kind of difficulty and were finding ways of rebounding. My hometown used to rely on an Air Force base that closed, and its orange industry is under stress. You know, how did they adapt to that? Eastport, Maine, they were at, they had a huge sardine industry that's not there anymore and is trying, trying to eke it out. And Greenville, textile oh, Greenville, factories yes. that are now the BMW plant and the, the yeah. Michelin tire plant. My, my favorite Eastport Main story, they, they make money shipping pregnant cows to Turkey. Pregnant dairy cows. <laughs> for, for details, here the marketplace broadcast. Yeah, I mean, it's the truth. Yeah. It's the truth. So, yeah. And, 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 yeah, so resilience is a big part of it, and it's, it's what we're looking for and have found. You're a delightful addition to the best show on radio, Marketplace. <laughs> um, how much longer are you all going to be doing this? Well, um, I think it, we've easily got flatted out the next year and a half. Let's see if the plane holds yes. up. And so, so, so it's, you know, <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah. So in, in, in terms of interest, we've learned as much in the last year as we did in any one of our years in China, which to me is high praise. You know, I, I feel this is really different from things I thought about in the United States. The sustainability of this project is mainly um, not in the realm of interest. We have to find a way as a side note, to continue financing it. It's not very expensive, but it's somewhat expensive, mainly through, through gas. And so we'll just figure out how, how to do that. And, and also, it should be said, you guys are on the road some extraordinary number of weeks a year. I mean, it's got to be physically exhausting. Uh, yes. It is, but yeah. we, we swim at the YMCA. You there know, you we yeah. find, find ways to do it, and walk fun. on the river walks. And... Um, as you expected, I, I was really fast. We were fascinated by the story about what people ask first. In different places, yeah. the story about Savannah is the the question is what are you drinking? Oh, <laughs> oh, there, you go. oh there you go. I haven't heard that one. <laughs> but your your conversation about um, having to be born in a place, you guys know New England, and sometimes that isn't enough. And the expression yeah. I've heard in Maine is just because your cat crawls into the oven and has a litter, that doesn't make them that doesn't make them muffins. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Dead yeah. Yeah. And before I pass this on, yeah. I just want to defend Robert Putnam. I think, I think the Bowling Alone thesis, yeah. it's not about small towns. Mm -hmm. It's about really suburban expansion. And it's yes. the length of your commute that determines your, your disengagement from civic uh, activity, not, not uh, just yes. society yeah. as a whole. That is a fair point. And we were, when we were driving here from Denver yesterday, we passed a lot of what looked like Bowling Alone territory of just this tracked homes with no, uh, no distinguishing features. So, so that's a fair point. And, and that's certainly yeah, the other factor you see when you're flying over the country yeah. is in countless numbers of... Yeah. yeah. How about the guy in the teal shirt right there? He had his hands up. Yes, sir. And then when were you? Yeah, and we'll get a rubber. Immediately when you start talking along these lines, I think of photography. Yeah. And what an incredible yeah. series of photography yeah. photographs could come from the work that you've done. I'm just curious if yeah. you're thinking about that. So we've been snapshotting our way across the United States, yeah. and, and we should yeah. 
Yeah. It's too sort of chaotic and random a plan now to actually be able to bring another real photographer. Also, the plane weight and balance are an issue. There's only if it's full of gas, there's only so much it can it can take. Every every time I go out, Jim sends me an email that says, "How much do you weigh and how much are your bags?" Yeah. yeah, and and the very first time it was an engineer yeah. coming. I yeah. just had to make sure this is not some giantly fat engineer. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> because it would affect. It's how a nice plane, but it's a teeny tiny little yeah. one. So it's so yes, we hope plane. to do this, but it will yeah. be a sort of separate follow-up thing. Yeah. 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 Where are we? In the back. All right, good. Um, <clears throat> what do you see as the future of these small towns that relates to the next generation? Great question. Next generation. Next. Yeah. So, so some of them, there are markers of their being able to make it. And, and, and here's an interesting proxy. If there's a craft brew brewery opening in the town, that really is a good measure, not just because I'm a beer nut, but because it means there are young people who are there and are moving there. And that it's become a really interesting marker of what, even in Mississippi, where they just changed the alcohol yeah. laws to make it possible. So there are places you can tell are, are dying. And again, we were in Sioux Falls. A lot of the people we met, they were from little tiny towns in South Dakota. It was only their grandparents living there, and nobody was going to go back. But a lot of these smaller places we've seen, there are young people moving there. Um, Winters is an example of that. Yeah, it's a tiny and town. people who grew up there or went to college in Duluth or grew up in Winters, California, population 7,000, I think that actually yeah. is a remarkable thing about what we've seen of the next generation, maybe 30-somethings, who are figuring out a way to move there, and it usually means starting some small entrepreneurial thing. A lot of it seems to be beer. Um, <laughs> or just say that like it's a yeah, bad thing. No, it, it, it's, it, yeah, it's not a bad thing at all. It's a good thing. Um, and, and then the wonderful thing, too, is that they are the ones who are dedicated to working in the schools, right. working, yeah. like, making it a place where they can raise their families. Well, the, yeah. This guy who did Hangar 24, yeah, right? He ben now Cook. 60% of his stuff is orange wheat beer. Yeah. Redlands grows lots of oranges. He buys yeah. boatloads of oranges from, from yeah. the right. orange groves. Yeah. Everything's locally yeah. sourced. Yeah. And, and you hear sustainability. You hear local. You hear, you know, this is from my territory. You, you just feel them right. drawing in the neighborhood to be part of what they're trying to create. And there's a walnut farmer in Winters we saw who has who's has a carbon negative farm that absorbs wow. more carbon from the air than that a whole production uh, produces, and he's brought his daughters back to, to run it. And yeah. So, huh. yeah. Uh, I don't know where the mic is. Yes, sir. I'm uh, I'm struck by the use of small as the adjective for small towns, and it seems to me on the one hand you have these very small towns. 1,200 people, 2,000 yeah. people. But then you're also talking about a Sioux Falls, which right. is yeah. actually a city, yes, and, yes, 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 and right. they really cross over. So Putnam's ideas are a mixture of bonding social capital and bridging social capital. Yeah. And I'm hearing your discussion of usness be a lot of bonding social capital. To what degree can you see that bridging social capital emerging? I get a little sense from the Sioux Falls example yeah. and the refugees, but that seems key. Um, I am not equipped to give yeah, a good answer to that. Are you, Kai? Not, not at all. Not for I will say about the, the scale, we're talking about smaller cities, of which right. the biggest by far are Sioux Falls and Greenville. Um, but it, and and the, the, the standard would be, would people in the big coastal media think of them as remote? Yeah. And they would think of Sioux Falls, Greenville, and Duluth as being remote. And so, so that's sort of the, the market. Let alone Eastport and Columbus. And, yes, which and are you know, genuinely tiny. Places. Yeah. Sir. Yes, could you comment on the homogenization of the United States? Is it more or less than what you had anticipated? So how we both look at her. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's racially the country, the surprise in the first couple of months is how is the Latino presence everywhere, especially in the Midwest. 
You know, just, yep. just sort of through the, the uh, Dodge City, Kansas, now majority Latino, as Garden City, uh, Kansas. Um, Duluth is still overwhelmingly white. Um, yes. so, but I think different, I guess we've been struck by the strength of distinct local cultures. People think, we had this dinner three nights ago in Winters, California, with people who said, this is the place that matters to us, this is the best place. Who has been to Winters, California? It's outside Davis, you know, it's a really nice, nice town. But the people there said, this, this is the place we want to live and want to make for our children, so, which is distinct and not homogenous. So last one, whoever's got the mic is the lucky winner. Where is she? Let's get it to, yeah, there we go. My daughter, a few years ago, did a bike trip across America, and she did a lot of homestays, and her commentary was very much like yours, that people were extraordinarily welcoming and embracing. But she also commented that there was an interesting phenomenon. She would be in one town, and people would say, oh, you know, everybody's warm. It's a great town. But that next town, they're not, you know. <laughs> yeah, you got to yeah. be careful. Yeah. They're wrong. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I wonder if you had any experience with this and if you think there's a bigger narrative about our sense of suspicion or fear of each other. Good question. You should hear people in Sioux Falls talk about Sioux City. Sioux City, Iowa. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm not sure it's so much suspicion or fear as you've got the town that's working and then you've got the town that's not working. And what are the factors in that that, that make it? And there got, are a lot of those. You know, yeah. Redlands is working and San Bernardino is not. Burlington is working and Plattsburgh is not. Burlington. Duluth is working, Superior, Wisconsin is not, and they're shouting distance to yeah. each other and exploring that. Yeah, the, the working has a sense of, of the overall sense of just rising, emerging. People want to be there, and that, as opposed to feeling they have to they have to leave it. Go ahead. I was just going to comment about the homogenization, yeah. and this is partly you're involved in this, okay? Yeah. So it's about the language. I was wondering. Does everybody talk the same, or are there still all kinds of regional differences? And the answer is yes to both of them. I mean, and and you're is, part is of the. Is it soda or is it pop? Right. I mean, yeah. But part of the everybody talking the same. The, there's one really interesting regionalism that started in California that you are partly responsible for <laughs> spreading around, and it's the you guys, uh, you, no. you too, you guys. Everybody, <laughs> even in the deep south. It's no longer everybody saying y'all. They kind of code switch back and forth between the y'all and you guys, depending on what the exact situation is. But the um, regionalisms are very strong. Kai is bringing in with his national broadcast a lot of Southern hmm. California talk that just wow. is going everywhere. Now I need to think about what I do. And also, I, do. I can't tell you how much fun it is when, when Kai and I are flying someplace He'll be doing the radio work. And so they have, you can hear the controller sort of doing a double take as they hear this famous voice on the radio saying, you know, we're 10 miles out for landing, et cetera. He's so it's a lot of fun. Kind. He's being very kind. James and Deborah Fallows and their project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for your time. Thank you.